Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Tuesday, January 10th, 2006, at the Society's 35th Critical Care Congress here in San Francisco, California. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will be speaking with two internationally recognized leaders in the field of critical care, Mitchell M. Levy, MD, FCCM, and Jean-Louis Vincent, MD, PhD, FCCM, regarding one of their recent publications in critical care medicine. The title of the article is Early Changes in Organ Function Predict Eventual Survival in Severe Sepsis, the reference being Critical Care Medicine, Volume 33, Issue 10, October 2005, page 2194. Dr. Levy is Professor of Medicine at Brown Medical School and Medical Director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at Rhode Island Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. He sits on the executive committee of both the Society of Critical Care Medicine as well as the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. Dr. Vincent is head of the Department of Intensive Care, Erasmus University Hospital, Free University of Brussels in Belgium, where he is professor of intensive care medicine. In addition, he is chair of the International Sepsis Forum and for 26 years has helped to organize the International Symposium on Intensive Care and Emergency Medicine. Dr. Vincent is also a past president of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine and the European Shock Society. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Dr. Levy and Dr. Vincent, from my understanding of reading this article, the basic idea was that you used the results, that was the control arms of both the Prowess trial and the Secretary Phospholipase A2 study and then you were using statistical analysis to determine, using multivariate analysis, which particular variables were associated with good outcome in patients with severe sepsis. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And, and, and so the major focus of this was looking for variables that were associated with good or bad outcome. That's right, Rich. I think one of the biggest challenges that faces critical care clinicians at the bedside of patients every day in the ICU is risk assessment. In 2006, our ability to predict who, which patients are at high risk of death is still very limited, and there are no really good objective measures that allow clinicians to say this patient is very likely to die, this patient is very likely to develop worsening organ dysfunction, or this patient is going to get better. There are some measures, and Professor Vincent's responsible for the SOFA score, which is a good way of assessing organ dysfunction. But in truth, clinicians are still left with their clinical judgment at the bedside to decide how sick a patient is. The point of this study and the results of this study hopefully will guide clinicians in that we demonstrated looking at this database in patients who were not treated 
and therefore we were able to use and evaluate the natural history of sepsis, severe sepsis and septic shock. And we were able to demonstrate and observe, I should say, that patients who did not get better at the end of 24 hours versus patients who got worse or patients who did get better, that patients who didn't get better, that is the stable group of patients that clinicians see, actually had a worse outcome and closer to the patients who were worse than patients who got better. So the message is, if you're not getting better at the end of 24 hours, you're getting worse. Dr. Benson? Yeah, I think it's important because it underlines the importance of the, of the time factor. And I think that we as clinicians tend to uh, forget a bit about this. Too often in the ICU, we hear that the patient is stable. Oh, yeah, still on the same doses of vasopressor agents. Oh, yeah, no, it's been stable, no problem. He's still on uh, 20 or 40 uh, micrograms per minute of norepinephrine, for instance. But that's very bad because we should try to wean off these vasopressors as soon as possible. And if the patient remains dependent on vasopressor therapy, as Mitch indicated, things are actually getting worse. Our aim should be to try to taper down and discontinue these agents as soon as possible, as this will characterize hemodynamic stability with a much lesser risk of development of multiple organ failure. And if you think about how the history of critical care has gone and the way often critical care clinicians utilize new therapies, for instance, low tidal volume strategies or different kinds of mechanical ventilation, often clinicians wait a very long time, a day, two days, three days, before they'll switch patients to a different mode of therapy. And often by that time, the patient is much, much sicker and therefore has a much lower chance of survival. It shows that every minute counts indeed and every hour counts and we should not postpone these important decisions to the next day for one reason or another. There were two other areas I wanted to discuss with you that I thought were fascinating <coughs> as a, as a uh, still starting out intensivist. Is According to your study, for example, if you were somebody who came in on no pressors and then required high pressors, your mortality was 58%. But if you started out on high pressors and remained on high pressors, your mortality was only 41%. And, and to me, that was yet another counterintuitive critical care result, is that it, it wasn't... Oh, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. And, and if you continue this further, patients who are treated transiently with even high dose of vasopressors, if these vasopressors could be discontinued early on, they didn't have a very high mortality rate. So the transient use of vasopressors is not necessarily associated with a much worse outcome. It's the time, again, the time factor that counts. And if the patient is left on vasopressors for a while because the patient requires it for a while, uh, then the mortality rates really increase substantially. And I think the point here is to find out if your patient is, in fact, getting better. And sometimes, as intense we start different interventions, and vasopressors are one example, and then forget about them, rather than always testing to see if your patient is doing better and therefore doesn't really need the aggressive care that they're receiving. Is, are there plans, because of the good results from this study, to try and integrate this kind of dynamic assessment into a new uh, model for risk assessment in the ICU? I know you discussed that to some degree in the article. Well, I think there are a number of us who are working to find ways to risk assess, and one element of risk assessment is dynamic changes over time. The PIRO model, for instance, which was introduced at a, a 
Sepsis International Definitions Conference in 2001 is an example of our attempt to stage the uh, progression of sepsis, severe sepsis and septic shock, so that patients can be risk assessed properly. One of the other questions I had for Dr. Vincent, I remember when we were discussing this beforehand, was the importance of getting people off pressors early, and I was confused. Um, in my mind, when I'm working with residents, it's we're giving aggressive fluid, and if they are still hypotensive and requiring pressors, we do it, and if they need it, it's a marker of how sick they are. Um, is the idea then that if a, is it a misunderstanding on my part that you want to get people potentially off pressors and allow some permissive hypotension? Or again, is it just a marker of how sick somebody is? I think you are raising a very important point because you are correct in saying that we should try fluids first and if the patient remains hypotensive despite fluid administration, we must give vasopressor agents to avoid hypotension. That's very correct. But what is the subsequent stage. What shall we do thereafter? And it's important not just to leave the patient there. It's important to come back and try again the fluid administration. And I think that if we see that the filling pressures are increasing and cardiac output is reaching a plateau because there is some myocardial dysfunction, the addition of the butamine may help as well. So fluids, inotropic agents, these are the measures that we should use to try to improve the hemodynamic status and decrease the need for vasopressor agents. But you raised another important point. It's by no means a, a question of permissive hypotension. The point is that it's not that we should leave the patient with hypotension without vasopressors. It means that we should try to achieve hemodynamic stability as soon as possible without the need for vasopressors. And, and I you. think this is a good example, as we were saying before, of knowing when to apply the right therapy and knowing when to take it away. So the two other examples that come to mind are the pulmonary artery catheter and mechanical ventilation. Often patients are left, for instance, mechanically ventilated a little bit too long, and we know that protocols and other um, means for assessing the need for mechanical ventilation have led to decreased duration of mechanical ventilation. And mechanical ventilation itself is a risk factor for mortality in the ICU. So knowing when to apply something aggressively and when to ask yourself, can I stop because my patient no longer needs it, is a really important aspect of, the, of quality care in the ICU. Absolutely. One of the other things that I wanted to ask both of you was this entire concept of using the control arm of these large randomized trials as a source for more data analysis. And I was wondering if you could share with the members of SCCM how that all came about. That must be a very interesting story. We had a long discussion about this during the last uh, meeting of the International Sepsis Forum two days ago. And indeed, there was an, a consensus around the table with, with representatives from the industry that it would be very important to try to put together the uh, data obtained in the placebo arms of these studies. Now, it's not easy because uh, if a study is negative, the, the industry, of course, uh, shifts its uh, interest towards other uh, products. And it's also sometimes difficult to combine databases which have been constructed uh, in a different way. Nevertheless, I think that we should try with the help of uh, uh, official organizations like the FDA or the NIH, it would be very important, as you suggest, to put these data together because we could then uh, reach very large database and therefrom obtain a lot of valuable information. Think about the important opportunity you have here. 
ethically, you now can look at the natural history of an illness in patients who are untreated because it's the control group. So it would be impossible to say to patients, we just want to watch you as you get sicker or get better in sepsis. But here you have a, a kind of a naive population, so to speak, and naive in the sense of not being treated but receiving we, what we think is high-quality care and just looking at the natural history of the illness. It's a wonderful opportunity to study all the different characteristics of uh, that illness. You mean not treated with the investigative right. That's uh, right. agent? Um, again, as an intensivist, the whole concept of these many scoring systems can often be very intimidating, Apache 2, MODS, uh, and the SOFA score. And I know that the SOFA score seems to be relatively intuitive when I'm reading it and looking at it in papers. Can you comment on the role of the SOFA score in, in this or maybe the history of it a little bit? I think it's... Uh, of, uh, of uh, great importance in uh, clinical trials. I'm not sure that you need to calculate a SOFA score at the bedside, and actually we don't do it routinely in our department. Uh, but whenever you want to group patients together, I think it's very important to have a severity index, and the Apache 2 score is, is very valuable for this, or the SAPS 2 score, but it's also important to quantify the degree of organ dysfunction and not just say that the patient has renal failure, yes or no, or a little bit of renal failure, or moderate renal failure. We need to find ways to more objectively describe the severity of organ dysfunction. Yeah, I think that what we've been talking about throughout this is the need to develop good ways to risk assess. And uh, SOFASCORE and Apache are attempts to do that. But uh, unfortunately, in 2006, as I said before, there's just really no reliable, objective means for a clinician to go to the bedside and say, how sick is this patient and how likely are they to get worse? Our data suggests something helpful, which is part of your clinical assessment is to ask yourself, is this patient getting better? And if they're not at the end of 24 hours, you should still be nervous. What I'd like to do is uh, read uh, an important section from your discussion and let you each sort of make a concluding section uh, statement for the interview. Although organ dysfunction at baseline is highly predictive of 28-day mortality, our study indicates that a single assessment in time is inferior to dynamic assessment of the direction in which the SOFA score has moved. The use of dynamic measurements over time more closely reflects a clinical perception that mortality is not dictated by the degree of illness at admission to the ICU, but rather is dependent on the patient's response or lack thereof to therapeutic interventions. It is very well said. <laughs> no, it's very important. What, what you are saying is very important. And w one could ask the question in, uh, in a simple way and say, uh, what, is the, uh, what is associated with the worst outcome? Is it to come in the ICU with a moderate degree of renal failure or to develop some degree of alteration in the renal fu function during the ICU stay? And actually, the latter is associated with a worse outcome. It's really the change in function which is associated with a worse outcome. And that's, I think, a very important message of our study. And I think that the more subtle message here is there is no substitute for being at the bedside frequently. Not just once when a patient comes in, not just once a day or twice a day, but really frequently being at the bedside, reassessing how a patient's doing, and thinking about 
whether a patient's getting better by being there, being present at the bedside. And in all cases, the clock ticks indeed, and mm -hmm. every minute counts. Exactly. Today's Critical Care podcast has had Jean-Louis Vincent and Mitchell Levy. Thank you so much for joining me today. This concludes our podcast for Tuesday, January 10th, 2006. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Stay up to date on advancements in the critical care profession by attending the Society of Critical Care Medicine's new educational series, Critical Care Academy, giving you tools to increase your critical care skills and knowledge. Critical Care Academy features the adult and pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses on July 18th through the 22nd, 2006. Prior to the review courses, take part in the new Clinical Strategies and Skills Simulation in Pediatric Critical Care or the expanded American Board of Internal Medicine Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review on July 16th through 17th to enhance your board review process. Tailor your learning experience to suit your specific needs at one convenient location, saving you time and money. Register today to guarantee your course selections by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.